All at the same time. That's wonderful. And throughout the day. So our scripture reading is uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 17. Mark 12, 17. Jesus himself had established this principle. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render unto or render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let us pray. Our Father, we know that before there was ever a civil government, there was Adam and Eve, who worshipped you freely, with no interference of man. And Father, we know you established that principle in the Garden of Eden and that your son Jesus reaffirmed it for us right there in Galilee. And Father, may we always be a voice ourselves today to embrace that freedom for all men, even when we lose that freedom. And so, Father, may those very principles be written in our hearts to show respect to the opinions of others, to allow them to have the freedom to worship you according to the dictates of their own conscience and understandings. And so, Father, now we ask that you be with us in our message this morning. Ask that you would be uplifted and honored, for you are worthy of our worship. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is true that Jesus is the one who established the principle that no man should interfere with another man's worship of God. That should be self-evident. But it's not really been the history of mankind. Unfortunately, men have not been satisfied with dominion over the fish of the sea and over the animals. They've always desired to have dominion over one another. And that's where man is wrong. But we live in a fallen world, so what would you expect, right? So we need to talk about religious liberty. And then after our Thanksgiving program, of which I very much look forward to, and I want each one of us to think about bringing a Thanksgiving gift to Christ next Sabbath of something that we're very thankful for, to raise up our voices because, you know, friends, he's worthy. We are here today because of him. Our hearts are beating. We still have freedom in this country. We have much to be thankful for. And we have been blessed with being able to hear the truth for this time, present truth. And to be at this church, you know, that for years has taken a stand to go by the Bible and the spirit of prophecy only, you know. So may God continue to be with each one of you as we look at this subject called liberty of conscience, which means the freedom to worship God according to the dictates of conscience. And... uh, George Washington, our first president, said this. Every man. How many? Every. Who conducts himself as a good citizen is accountable alone to God for his religious faith. And should be protected in worshiping God according to the dictates of his own conscience. It mattered not whether you are a Muslim or a Jew or a Catholic or a Protestant. It shouldn't matter. Or you profess no religion at all. Everybody is to be protected. That's what republicanism is. That's what the Constitution stands for. That everybody has that right. Everybody's intelligent enough because they're endowed by their creator with the abilities to make those decisions. But 
The idea of liberty of conscience has not generally been experienced in our world. When we just go through a little quick history of the church, we begin with pagan Rome. The pagan Roman Empire would persecute the Christians for not paying homage to the many gods of Rome. And you know, Christians believed what? There's one true God. But unfortunately, Rome had meshed their gods with their government, and by not recognizing their gods, I'm sorry, let me... By not recognizing their gods, they were persecuted, and Rome didn't even see it as, as persecution of the Christians. It was a matter of just what? Enforcing the law. And this is why it's so wrong for any nation to impose religious restrictions or force people to worship a certain way, because if you pass those laws, laws are meant to be enforced. And as soon as you have religious laws to be enforced, somebody loses what? Their freedom, their religious liberties. Okay. Then Constantine, there's a little shift in the Roman Empire. Constantine would be considered maybe the first quasi-Christian. I mean, he really wasn't converted. Nobody, no historian would say he was. But he kind of embraced a mixture of paganism and Catholicism and made that the religion of the empire. He would pass a Sunday law in 21 AD, but it was not an honor of Christ's resurrection. It was an honor of the sun god that the pagans worshipped. But he passed something called the Edict of Milan in 313, the very year he took power, And the Edict of Milan meant that all the churches could get their property back that had been confiscated under Diocletian because the church had been fiercely persecuted for like 10 years. But guess who wound up with all the property? Not those individual churches, but the church in Rome because there was a connection between Constantine and the church of Rome that ultimately became the director of religion in the empire they wound up with the church property, and the true church wound up with none. And they were persecuted. So in the early pagan Roman Empire, no liberty of conscience. Time of Constantine, no liberty of conscience, right? And then the papacy would eventually take over the Roman Empire. And as the Bible says, and the woman, God's true church, fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God that they should... Feed her there a thousand two hundred three score days at one thousand two hundred sixty years of persecution, and so God's people still had no liberty of what conscience, no liberty of conscience. This is a precious new idea, friends, that we almost exclusively, as a people on planet Earth, have experienced. Almost nobody ever had experienced the freedoms that we have, and certainly we know that fifty plus million. People who believed in Jesus were martyred, if not over a hundred million. And I want you to put that in a little context. We didn't have our first billion people till 1830. So if you lose 50 to 100 million people in just one part of the world, this doesn't include South America at this time, doesn't include Australia, China, this is just Europe and North Africa, right? That's a lot of people. Still, no liberty of conscience. Let's come a little closer to home. Puritans in Europe, mostly you associate them with England. They began their group really around 1533. And they weren't separatists. They still believed in church and state combined. They were just trying to reform the Church of England. 
And so they just felt the Church of England had too many remaining Catholic things, doctrines, uh, things that they would do in their worship service and say, we're just trying to reform the Church of England, but they still believed in what? Church and state. Okay? But the reforms they wanted to do were not reforms that the Church of England wanted to hear. And so the Puritans became persecuted in England, and they thought then freedom. They would come to the New World, not just for religious freedom, but economic opportunity. Well, they get to the New World. They come to Massachusetts. They uh, settle there. They are ardent, ardent advocates of religious freedom for themselves. But it didn't take them long, and they were denying religious freedom to anybody who believed differently than they did. So in Plymouth Rock, in Massachusetts, there was no liberty of conscience in America. In 1632, look at the dates. Puritan, 1620. Roger Williams, 1632, just 12 years later, has to exile out of Massachusetts because he wasn't accepted. And so he goes to Providence, starts the first government, American government, that had the separation of church and state. Okay? He has to flee, right? Because there was no liberty of conscience in America. Puritan theology. Just because the Puritans left England to escape religious persecution did not mean they believed in religious tolerance for others. Their society really was a theocracy that governed every aspect of their lives. Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press were foreign concepts to the Puritans. And as we get, if we have enough time to get into it, most of the evangelicals today go back to the Puritans to establish having a Christian nation. But what these evangelicals and Pentecostals don't understand is that the Puritans would have never given them freedom. Every one of them would have been persecuted, if not slain, if they lived back then. We don't get our freedoms from the Puritans. Established churches in America. America had established churches. We didn't have separation of church and state at the beginning. The Anglican Church controlled most of the southern states in areas of religion. The Congregationalist Church controlled most of what was in New England. Between those two, they controlled all 13 colonies except these four. Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. Maryland, look at the date, 1649. Maryland was established as a safe haven for Catholics, but the labor force became more increasingly Protestant. Therefore, Roman Catholics authored the Maryland Toleration Act of 1649 to ensure religious toleration towards Catholics. They figured if you get too many Protestants in here, Catholics will wind up being persecuted, will lose rights. But notice what the law said. The law mandated religious tolerance for Trinitarian Christians, but sentenced death to anyone who denied the divinity of Jesus. Doesn't sound like religious liberty to me, does it? So... Religious intolerance in America. In Massachusetts and Connecticut, Quakers and Baptists were banished. In Virginia, severe prohibitions were placed upon Quakers, Baptists, and Roman Catholics. Taxes were levied for support of the clergy of the established church. And clergy were given favored positions in public affairs. And when I say church, I would mean Protestant churches back then. 1682, we can... Praise God for Pennsylvania, 1682. In the Pennsylvania, the great law of 1682 proclaimed, proclaimed religious freedom 
And William Penn invited dissenters of all kinds to occupy the land. Pennsylvanians were never obligated to pay a tax for the support of any particular establishment of religion. That was unique. In almost every one of the colonies, you would have had to pay a tax to support the clergy in your area. How would you feel about that? Okay. <laughs> okay, I'm going to share that a little later. 1682. Wow. Let's look at New York. New York used to actually be called New Netherlands. Uh, it was under Dutch control. You were forced to pay a tax. All your money, all the tax dollars went to the Dutch Reformed Church. So you had an establishment of religion in America. We don't have religious liberty yet. So when the English conquered New Netherlands in 1664, they renamed it New York in the honor of the Duke of York, James II. And so the Duke Law of 1664 disestablished the Dutch Reformed Church and established in its place a, multi a multiplicity of churches, which meant that any church of the Protestant faith could receive the tax dollars. So in a township, we all live in a township, everybody in the township had to pay a tax to support religion. When it was New Netherlands, it all went to the Dutch Reformed Church. English now control it, becomes New York. You're still forced to pay a tax and support religion. But now it could go to whatever was the dominant church in that township, but it would be still one church. But it could be any one of the Protestant churches. Could be Episcopalian, could be Presbyterian, wouldn't matter. But someone was still going to receive all those tax dollars for that township. So notice that that's 1664, and by the time you get to 1731 in New York, um, New York is saying, oh, well, you know, that's not quite right. You know, what if you have a Baptist living in this township? We're forcing him to pay a tax, and it's going to the Presbyterian Church. Well, we're going to still force him to pay a tax, but now his tax can go where? To the Baptist Church. It could go to his own church, right? So they progressed a little bit, but you still don't have separation of what? You still don't have religious freedom. You're still forced to pay a tax, even if you didn't go to church. Right? By the time you get to 1791 and the ratification of the Bill of Rights, the issue is not whether we should prefer one church over another, because remember, in New York, it didn't matter. It was just the dominant church. They didn't care which one it was. You still had to pay a tax. But by the time you get to 1776 and the spirit of the revolution and 1791 and the ratification of our uh, uh, Bill of Rights, they're asking, well, why are we taxing people at all? Why would we tax the Baptist to even give the dollars to his own church? What if he didn't like his Baptist preacher? What if he didn't want to give anything to his local church? We shouldn't. The government has nothing to do with taxing people in religion. And that's what our First Amendment's about. First Amendment was, Congress shall pass no law, no law, respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Congress cannot pass any laws that would establish anything in the whole subject of religion or prohibit anybody from worshiping according to the dictates of their conscience. That's what the First Amendment means. And here's the thing. Congress was not given any authority to pass religious laws. In the Constitution, the Constitution only declares what Congress can do. And if the, if the Constitution doesn't say Congress can tax you in support of religion, then it can't. If the Constitution doesn't say Congress could pass a national Sunday law, then it can't. 
Not constitutionally, because it's not in the Constitution to say that they could do it. So Congress could never pass religious legislation, even in the absence of the First Amendment, because the Constitution never gave them the power to do it anyway. Now, during this time, think how revolutionary this is. In Europe, everybody had an established church. Spain was still had the Inquisition when we're having this freedom of thought. And in England, Britain had broke from Roman Catholicism in the 16th, 17th centuries, but who's the head of the church? It's still the king. He's head of the government, head of the church. But imagine how revolutionary it was to now have a nation where men were completely free religiously. They didn't have a tax. There's no king over the church. In fact, Congress couldn't even pass laws touching the subject of religion. This was such a revolutionary idea that men had never had before. That's what made America great. Not to steal a slogan, but that's what made America great, right? Was freedom. Now, let's talk about when they actually wrote this thing. The Constitution was written in the summer of 1787. Uh, most of its, its most notable author was actually James Madison. He actually did almost the entire writing of it. But obviously there was input from the 55 delegates that were at the Constitutional Congress. Two men that really influenced a lot about our Constitution was John Locke, who wrote two treaties on government. He condemned a monarchy government, form of government, and this idea of the rights of kings over people. And he instead, he promoted in his book a government that should be of the people, by the people, and the people themselves would vote people in as representatives to protect the rights of the people. Does that sound familiar? See, that preceded, that's John Locke who preceded our founders actually writing the Constitution. Montesquieu, in his Spirits of the Law, stressed the importance of the separation of powers. He noted that the legislative, executive, and judicial branches should not reside under the same person or body. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what we have in our Constitution. So our founding fathers didn't create our Constitution out of nothing. There were people who were leading these new thoughts up to this point because of the persecutions that had gone on in Europe, because it didn't really work well. Now, France, of course, reacted the wrong way and say there is no God. They were so sick of religion and the Catholic Church control over the people's lives, they said there must be no God. And the aid, but that's not the right reaction. You can't blame God for that. But men who tried to control and persecuted their fellow men, right? So at the Constitutional Convention, I wanted to show this to you because in our current state of affairs, you're going to hear evangelicals or dominionists say that the First Amendment's only about preventing Congress from passing one denomination as the religion of the country. Like it can't be the Baptists or the Lutherans or the Catholics. You can't choose one above the others. But I want you to look at what the founders did in this Constitutional Congress. On September 3rd, and let me, let me point out that the founders almost paid no attention to religion when they were writing the Congress. Almost paid no attention. You know why? Because they didn't plan on giving Congress any power in the area of religion. You see? So, and Edmund Randolph of Virginia declared no power is given expressly to Congress over religion and added that only powers constitutionally given could be exercised. So there were, at the Constitutional Congress, there were people there, they were a minority, they weren't the majority, 
who believed in meshing church and state. They were there. They've always been there. There's never been a time in our country there where there haven't been people who wanted to mesh church and state. I mean, that's the way it was in colonial times. And even the, the Constitutional Congress, you had people making these kinds of proposals. But notice what happened. Some guy gets up, he says, Congress shall make no law establishing one religious sect, like, let's just say, Baptist, right? Or society in preference to others. You know how they voted? They voted it down. Why? Because that's not what the First Amendment's about. We had gone so far beyond the concept of one church dominating all over the churches, okay? And so, but there's people who believed in this. They still wanted the government to initiate religion, but not one particular denomination. They make another proposal. This is all happening September 3rd. Congress shall not make any law infringing the rights of conscience or establishing any religious sect or society. Again, it's, it's just saying the same thing in a little different words. Congress shall make no law establishing any particular denomination of religion in preference to another. All three were defeated. All three were defeated because the First Amendment wasn't simply about not having one religion or one particular denomination being identified. Okay? I want you to show, show you what did pass. On August 17, 1787, it's the same summer, this is by Samuel Livermore. Congress shall make no laws touching religion or infringing the rights of conscience. That's quite different, isn't it? He's saying Congress can pass no laws that even touch the subject of religion. It's not about just establishing, not establishing one denomination over another. It's like, no, 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 no. Congress cannot even touch the subject of religion. And notice what happened. What happened? It passed. It passed. That's the intent. That's the intent of the First Amendment. It wasn't the final reading of the First Amendment, but it was the intent of the majority, the ones who won the day. But there were people who didn't like this that were sitting in the Constitutional Congress. And then on August 20, 1787, another one passed by Fisher Ames. Congress shall make no law establishing religion or to prevent the free exercise thereof or to infringe the rights of conscience. Well, that sounds a lot like the final wording of the... But at least you know what the intent is. The intent of the framers was that Congress could not pass any laws touching religion or establishing religion. Okay? So the founders were not merely concerned about the establishment of a religion. They're concerned about any establishment of religion. I mean, look at our Congress people. I don't know how many are guilty of adultery or how many go to church or how many drink or whatever. I don't know what churches they go to. But why would you want to leave in their hands the establishment of religion for the nation. It makes no sense. Leave it to the people. The people have the right to make up their own minds, right? It's the way it should be. So September 25th, 1787 is when we actually had voted the final wording. The Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, this is in the Delaware. Notice that this thought was not really new. It just culminated. Things were happening. We went from the Puritans persecuting people and people being banished from colonies in the 1600s and early 1700s. But notice by the time you get to 1776, people's thoughts about religious liberty are developing and in maturing. And so here you have the Delaware Declaration of Rights, that all men have a natural and undeniable right 
to worship Almighty God according to the dictates of their own consciences and understandings, that no man ought or of right be compelled to attend any religious worship or maintain any ministry contrary to or against his own free will and consent, and that no authority can or ought be given or invested in or assumed by any power whatever that shall in any case infringe or interfere with or in any manner control the right of conscience and the free exercise of religious worship. Isn't that beautiful? And you find that in almost every state constitution. Almost every state had this by the time you get to 1776. But notice how far America had gone from banishing people, from Roger Williams having to flee to Rhode Island, to now saying, you know, everybody's free. I'm telling you, friends, this, this is what made America the lamb of Bible prophecy. With two horns like a lamb, innocent, gentle, young, two great principles, republicanism, men can govern themselves, Protestantism, you don't need anybody to tell you how to worship God. And God favored this nation because of that. And he allowed us to send missionaries all around the world and have the American Bible Society where we translate the Wycliffe Society, translating the Bible, not just in different languages, but different dialects. And this gospel is being preached throughout the world. But what we're told is we went from a religious intolerance in this country to religious freedom to now go back to religious intolerance. intolerance. It's all prophesied right there in Revelation 13. Second beast causes the whole world to worship the first beast, to take the mark of the beast, to worship his image. When the leading churches of the United States, of all people in this country, the leading churches, but it was the churches in early colonial America that took away these rights. It's always been church people. When the leading churches of the United States, united upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common, shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and to sustain their institutions, then Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy and the infliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. Now, you're not going to like this, but you know there was about, in the pandemic, where the distribution of funds, $10 billion went to churches. Separation of church and state, supporting the institutions of the church. The Catholic Church got $3.5 billion because it was able to sign up as a small business. And qualified. The other billings went to these other Protestant churches. This is feeding them. I'm telling you, friends, this is happening right in front of our eyes. And it's not just parochiate and our tax dollars going to support religious schools, but you know something? Jesus can take care of his own school. Jesus can take care of his own church. But once you get into the realm of government giving out money and handing it out to churches, I'm telling you, that wall's coming down. That wall's coming down. When Protestantism, and I, I want to focus on one thing particular here, because we've talked about a lot of other things before. When Protestantism shall stretch your hand across the gulf to grasp the hand of the Roman power, and when she shall reach across the abyss to clasp the hands of with spiritualism, that's what I want to focus on. When under the influence of this threefold union, our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and Republican government and shall make provision for the propagation of papal falsehoods and delusions, 
Then we may know that the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan and that the end is near. I'm telling you, the the devil's got an agenda, friends. He has a lot of powers out there that he's supported, right? And you can pick any one of six and say they could start a new world order. Why does he want that many? So he just keeps us guessing, right? But we know what he's up to, right? There's a time coming where the Protestants have power in this country even right now. And there's going to be a real game changer. It's called spiritualism. And when these Protestants race across the gulf to grasp the hands of spiritualism, you're going to find the marvelous workings of Satan. I'm going to read you some statements here. Notice this. Medical Missionary, the book Medical Missionary. Satan will come in to deceive, if possible, the very elect. That would be us. Not the world, us. He claims to be Christ, and he's coming in pretending to be the great medical missionary, which means he's going to make people pretty sick, right? He's going to heal people. Second succulent message is 51. He will cause fire to come down from heaven in the sight of men to prove that he's what? That he's God, and people are going to believe it. And that's why Jesus says if they say I'm over here or over there, what? Don't believe it. Because when I come, every every eye will see me. It is the lying wonders of the devil that will take the world. That's what does it. You see, there's all kinds of superpowers out there, right? There's all kinds of powers. But this is what takes the world captive. Because they have nothing to say against it. Because they're not reading their what? Their Bibles. It is the lying wonders of the devil that will take the world captive. And he will cause fire to come down from heaven in the sight of men. He will work miracles. And this wonderful miracle working power is to sweep in the whole world. He will make people sick. And then will suddenly remove from them his satanic power. They will be regarded as healed. These works of apparent healing will bring who? Seventh-day Adventist to the test. Isn't that interesting? This is where, when it comes to the Sabbath, friends, this can't be a preference. This can't be simply because your mom and dad kept the Sabbath. This has to be because you know God wants you to keep the Sabbath. Because there's going to become all kinds of lying wonders and some Adventists are going to see people lined up at these other churches that are performing all these miracles. They're going to say, well, how could the Sunday movement be wrong if they're what? Healing all these people. That shouldn't deceive us at all because we've already been forewarned. Okay? This is really quite a statement. Wow. I want, I want you to encourage you to read the book, Maranatha. It's a devotional. They declared that they had the truth. Who's, who's they? And we'll see here in this quote, it's the apostate Protestants. They declared that they had the truth, that miracles were among them, that angels from heaven, what? Talked with them and what? And even walked with them. That great power and signs and wonders were performed by them. And this was the temporal millennium, which they had been expecting so long. The whole world was converted and in harmony with I'm telling you, friends, this is the game changer. See, all these world powers have money. They all have adherence. But there's a card that the 
apostate Protestants have that nobody else has. And that's spiritualism. From Satan himself. Let's look at these other three big powers. The globalists, they have finances. They probably have more money than any other group of men in some ways. They control the United Nations. And let's just say they have the virus. I'm not trying to plan any conspiracy theory here. But let's just give that to them, right? So what? That's all I have to say, so what? Russia. Army, oil, 146 million people, 11th largest economy in the world. So what? China, an army, 1.3 billion people, second largest economy. So what? What do the apostate Protestants have? They have the ability, they will have the ability to cause the nation with the most powerful military and the strongest world economy to do what? Pass Sunday law. They will have this state of this greatest nation to do its bidding. I think they've already trumped the other ones. They clasp hands with the Vatican, the world's wealthiest institution, an institution that's infiltrated every government and every religious institution. That's power, friends. And they will be empowered by Satan to perform false miracles to deceive how many? The absolute of the whole world. Now, I'm going to submit to you, that's much greater power than the previous guys. And that's how I understand it's going to happen. But the devil wants us to just look at the field. But you know, we have a book called Great Controversy. And the book Great Controversy was written by Sister White, and the devil tried to take her life. And he didn't try to take her life simply because it exposed what he is going to do is what he wants to do. You see, he can't change his plan in a second. He's been planning this. He knew how successful he was through Rome in infiltrating the church and then getting the church to have support from the state. But now in the end, he realizes he has to do something else, right? He can't do it all through the Vatican. Who's he need? He needs the Protestants. And if he can get the Protestants and the Catholics together, they'll control every election in this country, which is the world's strongest economy and military that will be able to cause the whole world to worship the first beast. I saw our people in great distress, weeping and praying, pleading the sure promises of God. While the wicked were all around us, mocking us and threatening to destroy us, they ridiculed our feebleness. They mocked at the smallness of our numbers and taunted us with the words calculated to cut deep. They charged us with taking an independent position from all the rest of the world. They had cut off our resources so that we could not buy and sell and referred to our abject poverty and stricken condition. They could not see how we could live without the world. They're going to take away your paychecks. They're going to freeze your bank accounts because they believe you can't live without... You won't be able to buy groceries, but God says, your bread and water. Now, who has the real power at this point? God's people. It doesn't matter a bit what the globalists have. It doesn't matter what the Russians and the Chinese and the United States have or the apostate Protestants. It's what you have. And you can't forget that. Because if you forget what you have, you'll get swept away, friends. Because what you have is the power of God. 
And the power of God isn't to make you wealthy. Amen. It's to turn you into a saint. Yes, the power is that you'll be able to love the very people who will be persecuting you. And you'll be the richest, most powerful people in the world. And it'll look like you own nothing. But what you have is what? Life eternal. Jesus living in your heart. You see, friends, in our world, we have such a misconception of power. People are wondering, well, who won the Super Bowl? Who won the World Series? Who's got the most toys? And as long as we look at the world and look at success that way, we're not going to appreciate what we have. Because success is being forgiving. Success is being humble and loving. You see, that's the true power. And that all comes from from above. This is what we have, friends. We know, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. We're going to lose every earthly thing, but the foundation of God standeth sure... Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from what? You see, that's friends. That's it. When the world is performing the worst iniquity of all time, trying to eradicate the very people who reflect the image of Jesus, you can't get more sinful than that. God's people need to be doing just the opposite. While they're taking over in an old world, we're getting rid of sin. That's the key, friends. That's the message. We never had a message that's called a prosperity gospel. Amen. Our message has always been becoming rich through the righteousness of Christ. Yes. How can Jesus' righteous life make you rich? Yes. By being like him. Yes. See people and treat people like Jesus. Yes. And you're the richest person on the, on the world. I don't care what's in your bank account. Amen. If you reflect the image of Jesus, you have what? You have everything. You have everything. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that what? And have the faith of Jesus. You know, friends, you can't remember that. You know, when Jesus was out in the wilderness, the devil tried to convince him that he wasn't the son of God. Isn't that right? You know what he tried to tell him? Well, how could you be the son of God? Look how emaciated. You can't even, you haven't eaten. Where are your disciples? How could you possibly be the son of God? But Jesus didn't look at his circumstances, did he? What did he remember? The word. Before he's left, his father says, Thou art my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus never forgot the words, no matter his circumstances. And so in the end of time, no matter your circumstances, you have to remember these words. Here are they. They keep the commandments of God. And have the faith of Jesus. Don't ever forget these words. Because it's, it's what you have. This is going to make you rich in him. The dragon was wroth with the woman. Ah, so what? Right? And went to make war with the remnant of her seeds. Was keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. You know, as far as I'm concerned, the devil could be as mad as he wants to get. Doesn't matter. Because he's going to. He's insane. He thought he could be God. Well, do you want to be intimidated by a guy like that? Or do you want to be fully influenced by the God of heaven and earth who is even trying to save him? God worked long with Lucifer. 
hoping that he would not continue on that course. That's whom I want to know for eternity. Is a God who bore along with me. I didn't become a Christian until the age of 20. And God never gave up. And even when I've fallen, God's never given up. Has he given up with you? Isn't that who you want to get to know for eternity? Absolutely. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven. Having great what? We're going to have power. We're not going to have the power of the purse. But we're going to have great power, friends. And the earth will be lightened with his glory. What does that mean? What's the power? We will have power. We won't have possessions. We'll have power. We won't have possessions. And we'll have power. We won't have positions. But we have a power. It's the power to reflect the glory of God, which is his image, his character. That's the power. I'm going to give you a statement. I want you to look it up. Desire of Ages 805. The impartation of the Holy Spirit is the impartation of the life of Christ. And this is where we've got to be careful as a people. They tell us, pray 777. Pray for the Holy Spirit seven in the morning, seven at night, seven days a week. But we need to know what we're praying for. If you're praying for the Holy Spirit and you just want to have power, you could wind up with the wrong spirit. The power is receiving the life of Christ. The impartation of the Holy Spirit is the impartation of the life of Christ. The Holy Spirit's not just interested in just giving you power. Because the power is in the humility of Jesus. The power is in the forgiveness of Jesus. The power is in the love of Jesus. And if we have the humility and love and forgiveness of Jesus, we have power. The real power. That's eternal. You see? Here's a statement by those who don't fully understand this principle of separation of church and state. Terry Randall says, I want you to just... I just, I want you to just let a wave of intolerance wash over you. I want you to let a wave of hatred wash over you. Yes, hate is good. Our goal is a Christian nation. That doesn't sound like a Christian nation to me. We have a biblical duty. We are called on by God to conquer this country. We don't want equal time. We don't want pluralism. You see, friends, this is the very spirit that's going to pass a Sunday law to take away your freedom because they don't care what other day you worship on. That you do not find in the Beatitudes, right? This is the wrong spirit all in the name of developing a Christian nation. What we're told is going to happen at the end of time. Gary North, one of the movement's ideological founders, made this their goal clear. A biblically-based social, political, and religious order which finally denies the religious liberty of the enemies of God. Well, that that sounds like uh, Puritanism to me which is not religious liberty. Pat Robertson, separation of church and state is a dangerous concept. Our Constitution prohibits one denomination. Remember I told you that they tried to pass this, not to have just one denomination as the First Amendment, but it was defeated? Let's see, this is what these guys say all the time. Our Constitution prohibits, meaning one denomination, to become the official church in America. It does not mean that our beliefs cannot be legislated. Well, it's exactly what the First Amendment means. That Congress can pass no laws establishing religion, right? 
The founders of America, Pat Robertson, the founders of America at Plymouth Rock, where you know he's wrong already. The founders are not on Plymouth Rock. The founders were at the Constitutional Congress in 1787 in Philadelphia. They were not on Plymouth Rock. Pat Robertson would not have had religious liberty on Plymouth Rock. The founders of America at Plymouth Rock and in Massachusetts Colony felt they were organizing a society based on the Ten Commandments. Um, Kenneth Fournay, I met that man. The wall of separation between church and state was erected by secular humanists and other enemies of religious freedom has to come down. That wall is more of a threat to society than the Berlin Wall ever was. This is what people are listening to in all these churches, a rewriting of history. Was James Madison a secularist? Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, they weren't secularists. They didn't always go to church every, every week. But they were Christians. John Adams definitely went to church every week. I showed you this one before, Dominion Theology, predicated on three things. Satan usurped man's dominion over the earth through the temptation of Adam and Eve. The church is God's instrument to take dominion back from Satan. Jesus cannot or will not return until the church has taken dominion by gaining control of the earth's governmental and social institutions. Weren't we told? There was persecution at the beginning of American history. Today, we still have religious liberty. But tomorrow, we're going right back to colonial times. And worse. It'll be worse. These are organizations, I don't know if you've heard of the POTUS Shield, it's mostly a Pentecostal group of leaders uh, helping to elect Trump, and the purpose is to reign the reign of God across the country and the world. Uh, these are, and they're, they're the proponents of dominion theology, these are the just a few of the ministries that preach this. If you look at any of these names, you realize these are the biggest ministries in America. And they're all promoting this erroneous concept of the First Amendment. And then I told you about the money. And I'm going to close with this. Jesus made it clear there are things that belong to Caesar, civil government. And then there's things that simply belong to God, your worship of God. That civil government, Caesar has nothing to say about. And logically, they shouldn't. As I mentioned before, I don't know the makeup of Congress, what their religious beliefs are, or the absence of them. But how could they ever lead a nation spiritually? And the Constitution never gave them the power or even the thought of doing it. But you see where these evangelicals are going, these dominions, they're going back to the time of the Puritans, not the framers of the Constitution. And they want a Christian nation. And, I, you know, friends, I'm not actually even judging their intentions. They don't even know where this is going to wind up. They have no idea. If they knew that this would lead to the murder of millions of people, they probably wouldn't do it. But the way to solve immorality in this country, yeah, I believe in moral laws. I just don't believe in religious laws. 
You can have a, you could have a law against the manufacture and sell of alcohol, right? Sister White took that stand, and we should be a voice of that again. It's not going to happen. But by taking a stand, you might win somebody to the truth. I think we have a law against same-sex marriage. That's a moral law. That's not a religious law. A religious law is telling people how to worship, when to worship, who to worship, what day to worship. See, a religious law has to do with a person's relationship with God, of which government should have nothing to say, which is why Congress would never... But you can have laws that deal with man's relationship with man. That's what our laws are. You can't infringe on somebody else's life, liberty, or pursuit of happiness. Everybody created equals has an equal opportunity to have the same freedom civilly and religiously. And governments are only there to protect the freedoms that are by the people, for the people. Is this right? But we're going to lose those freedoms. And there's certain things we need to really study up on, friends. The three unclean spirits that come out of the mouth of those, the dragon beast and a false prophet in the end of time, in Revelation 16, is going to be about Sunday sacredness, the immortality of the soul, and the union of church and state. And all that is, the worship of the beast has to do with spiritualism. The mark of the beast is Sunday. And the image of the beast is church and state. We do need to study these topics. And I, I want to encourage you to go back to the book, Great Controversy. If you want to read a devotional that will teach you these things, take the book, Maranatha. But I want us to all understand what's going to happen. Okay? But then we need to sharpen our skills on the Sabbath, the state of the dead topics, so that we're able to give an answer. So in upcoming sermons that I'm going to have, I want us to focus on the pillars of our faith. The pillars of our faith. You know, we're going to have a wonderful Thanksgiving meal that we'll focus on giving thanks to God. But after that, I don't know which pillar will be first. I want us to sharpen our skills. We need to defend the pillars of this faith because if we don't defend these pillars, where are you going to go? What are you going to believe? But the devil's interested in tearing down every one of them. And the reason we're given to, given to us is so as not to be deceived, Amen. but to be able to take a stand. Amen. Okay? Before we have our closing hymn, or our closing prayer, our closing hymn, <laughs> I'm 9 out of 10, getting it wrong, right? <laughs> Before our closing hymn, our, no, it's our closing prayer, we have a closing hymn, maybe number 482. I should let somebody else do this, huh? <laughs> stand. Number 482, Father, lead me day by day. Mm-hmm.